Welcome to Impact Drivers, a podcast about how entrepreneurs can build businesses that create a better world. I'm your host, Jen Helms. Welcome to the show. According to our guest today, there are 200 million smallholder farmers in India. It is a staggering number of people considering it represents nearly two-thirds of the population in the United States. In our sixth episode, we hear from Brian Lee, CEO and founder of Krishistar. Krishistar is working to end poverty for those smallholder farmers in India. They are working to do this by transforming agricultural value chains. In this episode, we learn about Brian's background that led him to starting Krishistar, his entrepreneurial journey, including how Krishy Star's business has changed over time, as well as challenges and advice for starting a business abroad. All right. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for joining me on the Impact Drivers podcast today. Hi, Jen. It's great to see you and a pleasure to be here. Great. So uh, this is a particularly fun episode for me because not only were Brian and I in the same MBA program at Kellogg, but we also were in the same internship program where we lived in India for the summer and worked with different social enterprises. Um, so I was curious, Brian, is that experience kind of what inspired you to to move to India after graduating to start Krishi Star? Yeah, so that's exactly right. I would I could take you a little bit through the the journey of how I got to still be here after <laughs> after you left and went yeah. back. Uh, so like just to take you back a little bit before that internship experience, uh, my background generally, I grew up in the U.S. I, I was an engineer. I went to Cornell University, and like this was quite some time back. I there wasn't really such a thing as a term social impact back then, but I just had a general idea that I wanted to do quote unquote good for the world. And as much as I liked engineering, I felt that business was more flexible for somebody that didn't know exactly what kind of good I wanted to do. I thought, let me do some business. Let me learn about business. So I became a consultant for a few years at Accenture. And then while I was there, I, you know, I I grew up as a little bit about my background also of Chinese heritage. My great grandparents came to the US in the, one of them came in the 1800s, great, great grandparents. So quite American, but still ethnically Chinese. And one of the issues that was important to me as a Chinese American was that I never felt there was good media representation for Chinese Americans. So at the time where I was growing up, I think it's better now, but at the time, if you put on the radio or the TV, I never saw that many people that looked like me. Mm-hmm. And I felt like that was something that had an impact on the um, self-esteem, on not having role models for the Asian American youth, on you know just giving you something aspirational as a young, impressionable teen. So I thought, what's one thing that has a big impact on culture and, and role models growing up? And I said, it was okay, music. Yeah, so when I when I left Accenture, I, I joined an Asian American record label uh, with the intent of building role models for the next generation of Asian Americans. And yeah, it was a really exciting time. I going around New York City in the music industry, selling CDs, which we had at the time, trying to get the music on the radio. 
a couple of things I took from that experience. One was just the the joy and and the love of working for something you're passionate about, like really feeling alive and really just chasing down your goals. And the second thing was what it takes to be an entrepreneur, like yeah. trying to operate where in a place where there is no manual, there are no experienced people. Um, yeah, maybe there's some book you can read about how to be in the music industry, but just trying to figure things out, knocking on doors, getting doors closed in your face and knocking on them and opening them again. I would say there was this way to learning experience there. But after about eight years, a couple of things happened. Firstly was the company wasn't scaling as much as we wanted it to. I think we wanted to be selling millions of records. We wanted to be the next Britney Spears or Michael Jackson or whoever, but we were selling tens of thousands of records and that was great, but just not enough to have the cultural influence that we wanted. Mm -hmm. And the second thing was I felt that as much as I still cared about Asian Americans, uh, I had taken some classes on social justice. I had done some volunteer work. I started to feel like, oh, there's these great big problems in the world out there. And maybe I wanted to spend my life working on those problems as opposed to something that was so personal to me. I just felt like there was quote unquote bigger problems out there. So let me chase those down. But at the time I didn't have the experience. Mm -hmm. I didn't have the resume and I, and I frankly, I didn't even know where to start. I was being told at the time that, Hey, you, you graduated with so much promise from an Ivy league school, you're top of your class. And now you've spent eight years making CDs and promoting, <laughs> what are you doing with your life, Brian? Uh, this is when my friends from Cornell were telling me. So I said, okay, I was actually in a bit of a low place. I said, okay, let me try to reset my life. Uh, I'll go back for, I'll go back to school. So that's what, that was when mm, got it. my, my, I started applying and fortunately got into Kellogg and that's where my life began to intersect with yours, Jen. I came mm -hmm. to Kellogg yeah, uh, and arrived on campus probably very much like you and I just it's like being in a candy store and you're into social impact and there's so many opportunities coming. Mm -hmm. There's, yeah, I went to Ecuador, I worked with chocolate farmers. I went to um, Brazil. I worked with, with the quest team and we did some volunteer work there and went to Kenya to work on an HIV AIDS project with the, the global health group. And then went to India for our summer internship, which was really exciting to me because it was an it was an opportunity to touch every, everything that I'd read about and, and seen, like being in a foreign place, working at social enterprise, working alongside impact investors, like everything that I thought I was interested in, like sort of wrapped up in one internship. Yeah. So that's why I chose to join that internship along with you, and that's mm -hmm. how we ended up in in India together. Great. Yeah. And so, just to um, take it back to the original question you asked, is did I decide? Yeah, that was my, did I decide to start this business while I was in that internship? Yeah. I would say absolutely yes. I knew that before that internship, I knew I was into social enterprise and international development, but I didn't know the reality of living abroad. Like I had spent very little time abroad before that. I didn't know the reality of social enterprise even. So yeah. the that entire summer, I got put on a microfinance project and I had spent the entire summer going around Northern India meeting small farmers. And mm -hmm. a few things that I realized, one was just seeing the face of rural poverty was quite compelling. I remember meeting groups of farmers and asking them, you know, why, like, you know, they would bring me up to the front and speak and I would say, what do you, what do you want for the future? And they would say, not to be farmers. 
And mm. so just like these little experiences where you're having with them, where you start to realize that there is quite a severity of poverty and just life situation in these places, that was inspiring. The second was the scale of the issue. So there's 200 million uh, small par- poor farmers in India, which is close to two thirds the size of the United States. Yeah. If you imagine yeah. that, that everybody you and I knew were small farmers, that would just be the scale of the issue. Right. And then the third thing was feeling like there was something I could do to help, right? Because it doesn't make sense to find a problem and work on it if you can't help. And the reason I felt that I could help is because when I was looking at the farmers and hearing their problems, it just sounded a lot of like what we were studying in school at, at our MBA. Things like, it's just a very, like the issue with being a small farmer is you're just in a really bad economic position. You're a small commodity producer with no market power with no product differentiation with bad with bad unit economics like everything that we would study in our econ class that says if you were to set up a business this is all the things you would want to be successful on the opposite end of that spectrum is a small farmer yeah everything wrong and i didn't know the answer at the time but i said okay but at least i'm studying that this is economics and so by that end of the summer i made that choice that i was going to come back to India to start the business. And the reason I hesitated was, although I made that choice, I would still say that I spent the second year of Kellogg reconvincing myself to do it. But that initial decision (laughs) to go out there was made that summer. And then there was a few moments throughout my second year of business school in which I, I reconfirmed that and then finally committed. And then, so you've kind of hinted uh, at Krishy Star's business model. Can you can you talk about what it is exactly and and how it's changed over the course of the business? Yeah, it's changed quite a bit. Okay, I, I think there's there's been three major iterations of the business. The first iteration was a very hardcore social enterprise version where we had early on identified the food processing industry as an area of interest to us. The reason being because food processing in India was very nascent in, this was in 2012, there was maybe two to 3% of the food was being processed and it was being projected to grow really quickly, some 20, 25% year on year growth being projected. And so it was a sunrise industry. At the same time, it's quite a advantageous industry for farmers because it's it's a natural hedge and it's counter cyclical to their prices. So when the prices are low, that's very bad for farmers, but that's good for the food processing industry and, and vice versa. So the thought was if farmers could get involved in this, they could hedge the price risk, which is one of the biggest issues for a lot of farmers. Mm. And then finally, the idea was that I saw or we saw a lot of support going into this industry. So government, NGOs, a lot of other organizations recognized that this was an issue. So there was things like small-scale factories being put up for farmers um, with the help of, say, some NGO. And a factory, I mean something like canning and pulping or a drying facility, like fairly basic processing, value-added processing. But the thing was that they were producing products that didn't have good markets. They didn't know where to sell it because these would be farmers in rural areas and they would maybe just produce products that sold in the local area, but they didn't know how to sell it into a major metro. They didn't know what products to make. They didn't have good food quality standards, I would say. They didn't have access to expertise. So we said, let us form a business that provides a a brand that buys from farmer-owned processing units and then sells it to 
high-end buyers. And we we honed in on tomatoes and we honed in on the Italian industry just by oh, one is based basis of some feedback I got pitching it to some Kellogg professors and said that, okay, your idea sounds great, but you need some place to actually start. You need a crop, you need a product. So right. we, uh, uh, I remember at one point sitting in front of a group of farmers and saying, hey, what crop do you hate the most? And they were going off on tomatoes because hmm. the price risk, because you know, sometimes they're taking market, they would get really bad prices. You know, it's really uh, susceptible to weather, all these things. And a few minutes later asking them, well, if you hate tomatoes, what are you guys growing the most? And they all looked at me and said, tomatoes. Oh, <laughs> And so that was a point where I'm like, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do with tomatoes, but if we can do something in tomatoes, we can really help some of these farmers. Yeah. So we got tomatoes as a starting point. And then we just went around trying to find who was ready to buy a processed tomato product. And we found out that Italian restaurants had a need for something called canned tomatoes, whole peeled tomatoes, as you might know it. Um, it was something that wasn't being produced much domestically. They were importing it. And they said, okay, if you can produce something like that domestically, we, we would buy it from you. And so we had sort of our first customer and our first idea. So we developed up that for a while. We scaled it. We were selling to hotels and restaurants in Mumbai. And then we spread to Pune, Goa, Delhi. Uh, we started to spread the product range, sun-dried tomatoes, canned tomatoes, Kind of like if, if you've seen Forrest Gump when when, the, when he's going shrimp gumbo and, and all the products can be made with shrimp. That was us with tomatoes. What, what okay. all can we make with tomatoes? Yeah. Canned tomatoes, crushed tomatoes, sun-dried tomatoes, diced tomatoes. It was like that for a while. And that was going well. And again, it, it hit a little bit of an inflection point where we realized two things. One was... And you might see a common theme. It wasn't scaling as much as we wanted it to scale. Right. Uh, because the high-end Italian horeca sector is fairly limited in scale in India one. And it's a very right. unstable industry. These restaurants, especially at the target range we're at, these restaurants go out of business really quickly. So we would go and sell to a restaurant. They would buy, they would become a big buyer. Uh, we would spend a lot of effort and then they would go out of business. Many of the times going out of business while owing us a lot of money. So it was really bad for a cash oh, cycle as well. Um, yeah. Restaurant industry has a pretty bad cash cycle. They, they pay on 30, 45 days where we have to pay the farmers on cash in many cases. So it was just not a good structure for growing a small business. Unstable customers with bad cash cycles was not very great for us. The second thing was that we we had drifted a bit from our impact model because what we found over time is the farmers that we were sourcing from their units weren't able to produce the quality or the unit economics that we needed to stay competitive in the market because we had a first mover advantage, but eventually other people started to come in and we couldn't compete on price and they, they had quality equivalent to us or the farmers were having quality issues. So we ended up having to switch our product to commercial units, non-farmer owned, not for our uh... entire product range, but for some of it. So we were again at an inflection point where we were feeling like not as much impact and not as much scale. Mm -hmm. The fortunate thing for us was at this time, we started to get approached by different industry, I would say like development agencies or government who, were, who saw what we were doing and wanted us to help them on development projects. These things could mm -hmm. be either a large scale factory that one of the governments of one of the states was putting up. Um, they, they, they brought us on to help with that project. Then we had an international development agency 
say, hey, we like what you're doing with tomatoes. Can you do that with our tomato farmers uh, that are growing in Maharashtra, which is near Mumbai? And Mm. can you do it with fresh tomatoes as well? Because you guys are dealing mainly in processed tomatoes. And we said, sure, we would be happy to. The, these projects were appealing to us for a few reasons. One was because, first and foremost, it was they were highly leveraged impact situations, meaning that when we were doing the strictly the food brand selling the tomato products, we had to sell to have impact. It was literally every can that we sold would have a few rupees impact to the farmers. So right. as many cans as we could sell would help so many of farmers. Whereas on these development projects, not only did I, did I not need an entire team, it could be just a few of us on that particular project. If, if we made the right recommendation or we came to the right conclusion, we could literally influence the flow of $100 million into a, into a state mm-hmm. uh, from an international development agency. So it was quite appealing to us to see that you could work together with other people and highly leverage your impact. So that was one. And then two is it also had the advantage of helping us build capacity, helping us explore new value chains or products. So for example, the we got put onto an Apple project. So that was our introduction to the Apple industry. It was really good for from a new business development. And then finally, of course, it, there was some stability in, in making that, like the consulting arm of the company and growing that brought more of a, a less scalable from a revenue perspective, but a much more scalable from an impact perspective. Uh, it brought a balance to the company. So I, I would say that this is the model that we're he- heavily following today. Mm. There's one more twist to the story, I would say, is that about a a year and a half or two years ago, I was, my wife is also a social entrepreneur. She she works with handicraft artisans in in uh, Gujarat and, and across the country, actually. So she was part of this accelerator. And I, I actually attended there as a speaker and, and some of the content that they were giving was around uh, something called redemptive entrepreneurship. So that, I mean, it has a bit of faith-based um, undertones, but it's something that, you know, as a model can be applied, you know, regardless of that. And the concept of this thing was that, you know, there's all these different arms of the company with like the interactions with the community, the, the, the interactions within the community, yourself as a leader. And if you imagine a concentric circle with at the middle being everything you could imagine of corporate greed, right? Exploits the community, you know, abuses their workers, is a me first leader. And then you have the second rung out saying, okay, this is probably your your modern day good, responsible company where you're treating your employees well, you're treating the environment well, um, you're you're helping people grow as leaders. But then they were advocating for a a third rung, which they were calling the redemptive edge, which was your helping to grow, like to add value to everybody you come into touch with, whether it's your stakeholders, whether it's in, whether it's your employees, and then you're looking to add value to your community, whatever aspect that you're interacting with the community, whether, whether that's something like corruption being stamped out or whether that's changing norms in the industry, you're trying to revitalize your community. And then as a leader, you're, you're working towards putting everything else first, right? Making yourself last and putting everybody ahead of you in line. And so it, mm-hmm. this, this concept was really appealing to me. And it's something that it resonated because coming back to my story about India, I was always, as much as I loved farmers and I loved working in India, 
it still was a bit strange to me that why is the, you know, why is the end focus of my life farmers and, and India when that really didn't have anything to do with my, my upbringing or, or anything about me. And this made me realize that, okay, I, I, I somehow thought, okay, let's, there, there's a bit of a vision that I wanted to put above helping farmers. And that was ru- running a company that added value to everybody around us. That means that anybody who comes and works at our company should leave feeling like we've improved their life in some way. Mm. Any of anybody that we interact with, whether it's our buyers or our sellers, we should not just treat them respectfully, but if there's in some way that we can make their life. And, and when I say make their lives better, I don't just mean earning them more money, right? Because if they're not quote unquote good people, then earning them more money doesn't really do well for the world. So it's more like thinking about it at a holistic level, like improving lives around you for, and and this like if you think about farmers too like we can blindly help farmers but there's probably some farmers out there that are not necessarily such good people and should we be improving their lives and helping them exploit other farmers so mm-hmm. really like seeing it as a holistic level and saying let's i mean it's going back to a little bit of a naive place like let's make the world a better place and this also includes industry like so as an example we are constantly in india there's something like especially at the small business level like people not paying their debts is quite rampant and there's a lot of this going around. There's a lot of money being owed. There's a lot of businesses that refuse to buy, I mean, refuse to pay their debts. And this puts a lot of other businesses out of money. So is there a way in which we can try to, if you think about the three levels, one is we could be one of those companies that does that. The second level would be like, okay, we can be respectful and not do that. But the third level is, can we contribute to stamping that out of the industry, right? Can we form a coalition of other buyers and try to, get ourselves some power and help other people get out of this issue together. So to, to wrap this all up is I, I kind of thought that there needs to be this aspect. Uh, helping farmers is great, but if we're not doing good for the world in the process of it, it's not really what I've intended. So to supersede that vision with the vision to improve the world in all those aspects, ourselves, our community, our stakeholders, the industry, the environment, everything, and then one of the aspects of that is we have this business model that's helping farmers. So helping farmers is still important to the company, but it's just one of the ways in which we try to make the world a better place. Equally important is inspiring community. Equally important is treating our employees well, et cetera. So I would say that's the third iteration of our company where we started to be really placing an emphasis on being a values-driven company versus just a company that's trying to have a triple bottom line. So to go back a little bit, one thing you also mentioned is how, and I'd love to just talk about a little bit more about how the consulting you've been doing has actually helped you explore new spaces. Like you said, one of the projects got you introduced to the Apple industry for the first time. Um, so, so my understanding that that kind of this the consulting aspect of your business has helped you um, with the the other side of your business where you're working more directly with small farmers? Yes, I would say it's it's helped on the other side of the business, exactly like you're saying. The two sides of the business by design should reinforce each other. Yeah. I think one of the biggest gaps that I've seen in trying to help farmers is if you meet any NGO trying to help farmers or you meet anybody even remotely interested in helping farmers, one of the first things they're going to come back to to you and tell you is we need help with market linkages. Uh, Majority of development efforts have always been focused around helping farmers get more yield, helping them, you know, Mm -hmm. reduce wastage, which is great. 
but the from a long term sort of economic structure of the industry, you can't just overproduce supply, right? You have to, otherwise you're just going to drive your prices down. You have right. to figure out demand. You have yeah. to connect to buyers. You have to find product differentiation, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And most of them are not well positioned to do that. They just end up growing more tomatoes, but they're not necessarily finding a like if they grow better tomatoes, they're not necessarily finding better places to sell them. And right. a lot of people view market linkages as, oh, I know a buyer. Let me just connect you up. But there's much more to it than that, right? There's reasons mm-hmm. why it's not that that buyer doesn't know about farmers. It's not that those farmers have never heard of that buyer. There's reasons why they're unable to connect together. So there's also a a large aspect of supply chain development and technology implementation. And right there is, I would say, the intersection between implementation. like by, By being a company that runs businesses that builds market linkages, but also does consulting, we're able to bridge that gap between those large scale development initiatives and the on the ground trying to get things to work and how do we get our development projects to work? So by, by sort of straddling that space, we're able to, I think, fill, fill that gap one, but also we're able to continually build our own capacity. So our ability to be a food brand grows every, as many projects as we get on and our ability to deliver more value to projects grows the more business we do. So I think mm-hmm. in a sense, it's, it, it reinforces each other and fills a gap. So the trick is to try to stay in that sweet spot between the two. If, you go, if we go too far consulting, we'll lose our ability to um, have like sort of on the ground knowledge. And we'll also lose our, the inherent business scalability of because we'll become too services oriented and we won't have like scalability from a resources perspective. If we go too far on the business side, we lose all those advantages of leveraged impact, of, of growing, of capacity building, et cetera. Okay. Interesting. Um, and it sounds like now at this point, a lot of how you're funding Krishi star is through different revenue streams that you've been able to develop, but you've had to probably secure some funding to get going. Is, is that, I think I've seen that you've raised some money. Is that correct? Yeah, we have, we raised a initial seed round in 2016. I believe. And then we had, I think a, a year before that, we had gotten a CCD, which is a compulsory convertible debenture from another funder. So those were the early stage funding that we got. The Yeah, from an equity perspective, that was mainly when we were growing only on the marketing and business implementation side. Mm-hmm. And then as that runway was running down and we hadn't scaled up to the place that we, it was right around the same time where I was telling you before we had reached an inflection point where it wasn't scaling the way we wanted it to. Mm-hmm. So we had to, we had actually gone out and said, let's raise another round and then felt that we weren't well positioned for it. Right. We, we didn't have that. The the model wasn't scaling as quickly. So the next round of investors were not quite ready to see it work at the same time we were caught in a hard place. So we said, okay, let's go to, let's go to like grant funders and other t- impact investors, but they were saying, okay, your impact is not what we wanted to see. So we're not ready to fund you either. So we found that we were sort of caught in the middle of the two. We were too impact focused for the equity or even social impact investors. And we were too not enough impact focused for the <laughs> impact grant funders and everything. So that's when we had to explore finding other way. I mean, I think as an entrepreneur, you end up just becoming very scrappy. So 
Right. You got to find money. So you figure out how to get money. So, you know, so you got to find other revenue sources. So, you know, getting into other business lines, getting getting into some of these consulting projects, what I would say was coming right around that time where we also were, were needing revenue streams. So it, it worked out from that perspective as well. And then can you talk a bit more about the social benefit that Krishi Star has had, how it's the impact it's had helping farmers. I know there's also this other side of you know, values day to day in all aspects of your business, but it, it'd be interesting to hear specifically about how you've been helping rural farmers and what the impact yeah, has been. Sure. So I'll I'll, t- I'll take it across the different areas of the business. From a business side, the idea originally was that we were going to purchase from these farmer-owned food processing units and. These units were owned by farmers cooperatively and by helping their business, essentially these food processing units are businesses for them. So by purchasing from them and helping make their business more profitable, in theory, the impact should trickle down to them, right? It's because they're owners of this business. If that business is doing better, they won't necessarily see money, but by that business doing better, uh, they, they're owners of a more valuable asset. A lot of these businesses give back to the their owners in some ways, like they might run capacity building training programs for their members. There's sort of ancillary benefits that come from these businesses. Mm -hmm. The idea being that in the long run, they should start to to see money as as those businesses grow to the point where they can start distributing their profits and those farmers should make that money. Now that wasn't, as mentioned, due to the previous challenges, that wasn't scaling up as much as we wanted it to. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's it's also a bit opaque. The other challenges, you have some of these cooperatives or FPOs or or these farmer groups, and they might be owners of this business, and you know you're earning them profit, but how much are they actually distributing to their farmers? To find that out, you have to go through quite a detailed like impact assessment project, which as a startup, we didn't always have the time to do. Right? We could do it occasionally, but we can't constantly be monitoring to see what they do with their money as we just didn't have the resources to do it. So we sort of, from the early stages, we just took a general acceptance of like this whole, let's just put money into the quote unquote pie before seeing how that pie is being cut up. And, and later, once we're a bigger company, we'll just, we'll go and check. That was the mindset we had because we couldn't spend all of our time monitoring impact and not building the business. So I would say that was what was going on that side. And then when we got into fresh value chains uh, through some of these projects, it became a little bit more obvious to us. So if we're purchasing from Apple farmers or from tomato farmers, uh, one of the things we were doing from Apple with the apple farmers is we are purchasing the apples and then storing them and selling them year round in other places. Cause apples here is a highly seasonal crop. There's only a few months in the year where it's being made domestically. And then it gets put into cold storage or controlled atmosphere storage and sold for the rest of the year. But a lot of the farmers don't have access to this. So they're stuck only selling it in season at the prices dictated to them by the market. They don't necessarily get the benefits of being able to store it and then sell it for higher prices at the end the rest of the year to higher value buyers. So the idea from us is if we could bridge that and become that those people that buy the high quality apples, store them and sell them, that we could give higher prices to farmers because, mm-hmm. because we would not necessarily higher price, right? Because as a business, I think you no matter who you're trying to help, you never want to be paying more for something than what it's worth because you you'll lose in the end because you won't be competitive. Right. But what we're able to do is Pay, we were able to pay them more for the quality, for the good quality they're making versus somebody else won't pay them for that quality. Mm. And it works out for us because then they're incentivized to keep giving us the good quality. So it still is a business move, but we're able to get them a higher percentage of money for the ones that are good quality, which they wouldn't have gotten otherwise. So that's 
when we're doing that, we're able to see exactly how we're benefiting farmers. And as last season, I believe it was somewhere between five and 10% higher prices we are able to give to those farmers. Great. So that that's in terms of direct impact on the business side, on the consulting side. It's just, it, I think it's more obvious that it's all dependent upon what project we're on. Mm-hmm. Um, but the interesting thing on that side of the business is the impact in the development sector to farmers is equally opaque in the same situation that I was saying earlier, where it's sometimes hard to tell how farmers have been benefited in these projects. It's almost equally hard to tell how those farmers have been benefited. So a large part of what we do as part of the projects is try to dig down into that impact. Uh, in fact, we are on some impact and evaluation projects specifically to see the impact itself. Like, you know, it's easy to say farmers are getting a 10% higher margin, but you know, how does that actually break down? Like, why are they earning that money? It's, it's not so easy to measure on the ground. So Yeah, I imagine that does sound like it'd be difficult to to drill into. Um, but it sounds like you've found some ways to to get a closer look because you're doing that specifically as a project. Yeah, well, we're trying. That's yeah. I mean that's <laughs> the, that's the goals that we're doing. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the challenges around like, for example, like the the easy way to say, have you made more money for farmers is to take the price you've bought from them and compare it to the market price, what they would have gotten if they sold it to the market. But, and I'm not talking about like grain commodities or I'm talking about fruits and vegetables, Mm -hmm. but actually you'll come to realize that there's no such thing as a market price. Every farmer that brings their produce to the market enters into a mini negotiation with the traders there and sells at a different price. So there's not exactly a market price and every farmer has a different set of grades, right? They might have if they have 70% grade A and 30% grade B, they're going to get a different price for their lot because they're all just mixed together and sold, right? So they're going to get a different price than somebody who had 30% and 70%, the opposite. Right. And so being able to pull all that data out of yeah, the market geez. data, which is scarce already, and then compare it to the prices we gave and throw on top of that fact that, you know, how incentivizes a trader to tell me what price he bought from. So it's, right. yeah, that wow. that's not the easiest thing either. Okay. So could you speak a bit to any advice you might have for other entrepreneurs interested in starting a business abroad? Sure. I will break it into two sets of advice. What One set of advice of what to do if you're thinking of doing it. And then what set of advice of what to do if you're actually doing it? Like okay. if you're actually like taking that leap and now you're doing it. So I think if you're thinking of doing it, my best advice would be to find ways and you can limit your risk in whatever way you want. Do as put your hands on as many different aspects of what you think you're interested in as possible. Um, and to, to tell you what I mean by that, uh, when I was applying to business school, I was telling everyone I'm interested in international development. And then they would look at my resume and say like, yeah, that sounds great. And you're very passionate, but why don't see anything about that on your resume? Right. Mm-hmm. So um, how do you really know? Like, or is it just something you read in a book? And and they were right. The second thing, like my experience at, at Kellogg was when I was saying I wanted to go into impact investing or social enterprise, I wasn't sure. Then when I came here and I found an internship and I tried out both, I realized I I wanted to be on the, so it was more exciting for me to be on the other side. Mm-hmm. And so th- that's something that I'm really very passionate about that you just 
a lot of people get stuck in indecision. Like, should I do this? Let me read about it. Let me research about it. I think you just have to go put your hands on it and how to do it. There's a lot of ways to do it, but I would say it also depends upon your background. But I would say the easiest way to do it, if you're, if you're not in an advantageous thing, like you're in school and you, and you can just get on a project is to find an organization. And I can even, I'll even like say, like, say an organization like ours, say you have an interest in agri in India and you're listening to this podcast. Um, my contact information easily findable on LinkedIn. Like why you should drop me or any of the other great speakers I'm sure you have, if they're in the industry, drop them a note. Tell them that's an area that I'm interested in. Do you need any help? I'll tell you the average social entrepreneur is not going to say no to help from somebody who they, right. <laughs> let, let alone, let alone somebody that's qualified. If somebody comes to me with like, I'm a, XYZ MBA or and I'm an XYZ agri scientist. Like, of course, I'm just talking about somebody who's just like, I have no qualifications, but I'm excited and I'm willing to help. Chances are like, you're also not going to be said no to it by that many people because mm-hmm. so many social entrepreneurs, especially are very resource limited. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough talent. And I would venture to guess that anybody who's listening to your podcast is probably of the interest level and probably is doing it because they have a certain skill set. Like they're taking the time to listen and learn. So then you probably have enough of what it takes to find an organization that would at least let you volunteer, do a project, right? Like, let's say you're sitting in the U S and you're interested in India and you're like, first thing you want to do is just be like, Hey, Brian, can I help you out? And I've had people do that. So I, I was part of the mentorship program for Northwestern. And I had a Northwestern undergrad just message me as part of the mentorship network and say, like, Brian, I'm really fascinated by what you're doing. I've got three weeks before my, like, I'm traveling throughout Asia and I have three weeks. Can I just come and be with you for three weeks and try to try to help you out in whatever way I can? And, you know, I'll pay my own expenses. You, I, I won't be any kind of burden to you. Like, you just come. So he came. Great guy. Like, just like really enjoyed being with him. His name is... Gary, in case you're listening. And like, ha, like I was like, you know, it's, it's not so easy to figure out what people can help you with because in such a short period of time, but he ended up writing one of the, he ended up writing a proposal for us because he was a good writer. And we ended up going to the final rounds of that, that stage. So in three weeks, he found a way to contribute. And then in terms of the experience for him, you know, we had a team going out to the field. So I was like, yeah, just go, man. So he spent I think three days just riding around India on a, on the back of a motorcycle. And I, and I believe and having the time of his life. And then he then went back for his last year and he's actually, we've been in discussions with him over time where he's been like, Brian, I want to come back. Can I come work for you? And I was like, yeah, man, you're a great man. The door's always open. Like, let's talk. So from the, from the side of, from my side, it's like, I've, I've met somebody that I like him and I think he's great. And if he ever wants to make that plunge and come out here, we'd be happy to, talk to him and find a place for him from his side. He no longer has to think about India as just like, Oh, that sounds like a great idea. He's been here, right? He knows, he knows he can handle the food, right? <laughs> right. And he loved it. So that's like, like that thing that he did um, three weeks of helping out or, or if you have like, like, like say you're getting into an MBA program next year, this is another one I like because I talked to a lot of pre MBA students, like go do an eight month pre MBA internship with a company, find somebody who's willing the great thing about social entrepreneurs as well is we are needing help in so many ways that we're probably happy to 
design a project that will give you the ex- exactly the experience you want to do. Like you might say, like, I want to lead a team that will say, hey, here's a team, lead it. Like you want to say, like, I want to like invest, I want to learn about sustainable energy and I want to work on marketing and be like, okay, here's a project, do it. So you can literally put exactly what you want on your resume, get exactly the kind of experience. And the sacrifice mm-hmm. that you have to make, of course, is you, you might not get paid or you might get paid just a very little amount. So the benefit to the social enterprise is they get a talented person working at a, like, you know, they wouldn't be able to get this person otherwise. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then, yeah, the benefit really works two ways, but then they work with you. Like I'm willing to help you get onto your resume, whatever you need on your resume. Right. Get the experience, whatever you need. So that's okay. That, that's before you try it out. Once you've taken that plunge, I mean, there's so much advice to give, but I would say the biggest thing is the people that you put around you. So if I were to look back at the, what allowed me to come to India, it was when I had those classmates coming with me. What helped me land here was having my MBA network. And some of them were so, you know, they had me home for dinner with their families. They, you know, they took an interest in me. Like having that support network was so important to me when I, like when I, when I, there was a time when my classmates went away, right? They had to eventually go back to their jobs. And then there was that first time where I was truly alone. I was homeless. I didn't have a place to stay because I had actually come back to the, I had like, I was with my classmates and then I went back to the U S for, I think Christmas or something or some holiday. And then I was going to come back to India. So when I landed on that plane in India, that second time, I was completely alone and I didn't have a place to stay. One of my classmates had a friend who had said that I could stay on their couch. So I was staying on the couch of a stranger for two weeks and I actually really quickly sort of wore out my welcome because how, how much is this guy willing to put up with me? I was, then I was out on the street and then oh, floating wow. between Airbnb, B, BNBs or, or staying on more couches and seeing my savings run out on top of my student loan. And there was one moment where I packed all my stuff up and I, I forget where I stored my, I think I had one or two luggages and I sort of put them somewhere. And then I was taking a, a trip because I had uh, arranged some meetings in Bangalore and a few other cities. So I was on a train. So I was sitting on a train and I had no home. My, my luggage was just like stored in a random place. Uh, I had no business model yet. I had no team. And if you've ever been on an Indian train and you're a foreigner and you're sitting in that train, like you're, it's very clear you're out of place. And yeah. it's a very, like, I think Jen, you could relate to this. Yep, I can. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say that's one of the lowest moments I've had in India. Cause I was just like, what am I doing? I've got nothing. I've got nobody. I left, <laughs> I've left the U S wow. I have no money. I have, I have no business model. And yeah, so it, it's those feelings that were not there. And the biggest reason that was there, I think was because I didn't have anybody around me at that moment. Mm -hmm. So I think finding those people that can support you, whether it's supporting you from home and kind of just reminding you that, Hey, you're doing good to having a network here, having the Kellogg network here helped having my classmates here helped. So when I eventually got back from that, I ended up joining an early stage incubator called unlimited. And that was a bit of a community that I was able to plug into. And then I think I made a few friends. Once you plug into a community, I started doing dance classes, like things that like make you feel like you have a regular life. A lot of that has to do with finding your, a group of people that's going to support you. Um, so that's just from like a life perspective, but even a business perspective, finding a co-founder is very important, but it's also, you have to find the right ones. You have to 
find that balance between not wanting to be alone, but also finding the right person that's going to match your vision, that's going to add value to the company in the long run, et cetera. Because I think you'll see this advice everywhere, but those first few people you bring into a company, like almost dictate what happens to your company. Yeah. So that's, yeah, it's all about people in those early stages. Ideas are great, but ideas don't help you when you're sitting on a, a train alone in in the middle of the of, of rural India, unable to eat the food because that's too spicy, and everybody's asking you where you're from. You can't understand everybody. Like your idea doesn't really help you at that point. It's like having right. somebody to call, right? Yeah. It's having someone to sit there with you. Yeah. So working to build a community as fast as you can, it sounds like, is really important. But sounds like at the same time, needing to still make sure you're bringing the right people into into your company. Yeah, sounds yeah. like a, a tricky place to be in. Yeah, exactly. Because the right people can help you, but the wrong people can make you leave just as fast. Right. Yeah, I imagine. Well, thank you so much, Brian, for taking the time to join the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're most welcome. And I I think I would extend my, I hinted at it a brief earlier, but if anybody that's listening needs to get in touch, Jen, you can feel free to post my LinkedIn or whatever. They can drop me a message. I can't promise I'll get back to you right away, but I'm always up for supporting aspiring young social entrepreneurs. If you've got a question or advice or you want an internship or you just want a good book to read, like you can always just drop me a message and I won't promise to respond to you right away, but I will respond to you. Awesome. That's great. Thank you so much for that offer, Brian. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Impact Drivers. Make sure to visit our website at impactdrivers.io where you can subscribe to the show. If you found value in today's episode, we would appreciate your rating on iTunes. Or if you could tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. I'm also available as a business coach. You can learn more about my services at lucentpathways.com. Join us next time for a chance to be inspired and learn from the entrepreneurs daring to build the hard businesses that create a better world.